If you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to uh, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi 2. And while you're opening up there, uh, just a couple of quick uh, uh, words. Children, remember uh, what I had mentioned. Uh, the sad faces all over. Millions and millions. No, that's probably too many sad faces. But uh, sad faces all over. The word discipline, uh, gospel, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit. Uh, these words uh, mark out uh, each of those sad faces with a cross. And we'll see, uh, we'll see how many sad faces we can get through. Y'all have to have good listening ears to get it, though. Um, uh, one other quick note before uh, I uh, read this text and introduce it to y'all. Uh, I had to split it in half. So our, our bulletin says uh, Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. That was my intention. Uh, but as God uh, led me in prayer and preparation, uh, we had a sermon uh, in, in the first five verses. So we'll, uh, we'll do that uh, and praise the Lord for it. Um, uh, if you're curious as to uh, perhaps what we can get from this, and maybe if you've skimmed it already, that's uh, a good question. If you haven't, uh, you'll hear it in just a moment. And you're thinking, even with this main point that Jeremiah is about to give me, what, what can I get from this? Uh, what can pique my interest? Why, why should I hone in? And, 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 and how can I, as I'm worshiping the Lord, uh, 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 see the Holy Spirit work in me? Uh, I, I think that uh, my question to you is, uh, do you want to feel a little bit more natural in your own skin in this world? Uh, would you like to feel just a little bit more content? Would you like a peace that it truly passes all understanding? I think that these questions, uh, we can really see an answer to those here in the first five verses of Malachi 2. And so, uh, if uh, perhaps you're like me and you're thinking, I, I need, you know, I hear the main points, I love the main points, it's good to see. But, but God, uh, He is always blessing His people and He gives us those answers. Even as we worship God and see truths about Him, of course we get answers to those very things that I think haunt the majority of humanity in today's Age. Uh, so, uh, before we read uh, Malachi verses 1 through 5, and really it's just the first part of verse 5 that we'll be covering today, but uh, here's the main point. God breaks through sin and unbelief to save his people. And when I am talking about the word break, I mean physically. He he breaks. It was something with, uh, with some real grit behind it. Uh, God is willing to break through sin and unbelief to save his people. I think, you see what, uh, I think you'll see what I mean when we read our text this morning. Let's pray before we read God's word. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have seen fit to preserve it for thousands of years that we might benefit by unadulterated capital T truth, uh, a, uh, a commodity that is not so easily found in this place, in this world that we reside. And yet, God, you have given it to us that we might stand fast on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus and that we might move and live and breathe an existence that is real and that is not uh, hindered by the falsities of this world. And so God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Only you can do such things. And may we be blessed by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Malachi chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And now, O priests, 
This command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God, it stands, it remains forever. And we would do well to praise him for such things, especially this word, which carries with it incredibly good news for us. Uh, It is a bit of a shocking word at first, but stick with it and we will see just how good our God is to us. Remember our main point, God breaks through sin and unbelief to save his people. We'll see it in two points today. Discipline and covenant. Uh, Before we get into uh, this concept of discipline, which is going to be very important today, remember where we are in the book of Malachi and what Malachi is doing, how God is moving his word into uh, uh, the hearts of his people here in this moment. Uh, Malachi finds himself, as we have been, uh, with these people who have come back from exile in Babylon. So now they're in God's country. They are with God's people. And yet, something's not right. Their hearts aren't right. And so not only is it a homecoming, but they also need a heart check. That's the sermon series. Contemporaries in all likelihood with Haggai and Zechariah. So Malachi is pushing forward a word in a, a bit more of an intense way than Haggai and Zechariah. And remember, those two guys, when they were proclaiming, they were pretty intense. I mean, we, were, we had apocalyptic stuff. We had flying carpets with words underneath. I mean, this was intense stuff, right? But, but uh, Malachi, it's almost like he goes toe-to-toe uh, with the hard-heartedness of the people. In other words, if I wanted to use the main point this morning, uh, God, uh, he, he's, he's breaking through something that has become very hardened, the hearts of his people. And so uh, this is kind of where we are. We're in the midst of uh, this second question where God's saying, hey, you're not honoring or fearing me. And so now he's calling out these leaders and, and, and you see this kind of what we might think of at first as almost harsh terminology, this discipline, which is our first point in verses 1 through 3. And humanly speaking, yes, discipline does carry negative connotations. This is because of our own sinfulness. If you are the one being disciplined without perfect communication leading to a true understanding of the offense, you feel unjustly punished every single time. Parents, you don't have to look farther than yourself to say, absolutely. Because no matter how hard you try to communicate, that's one of the hardest parts of discipline. Moreover, even if we can get there, even perfectly just punishment is still very unpleasant to the one being punished. 
If you are the one then doing the disciplining without perfect control and judgment regarding severity, it gets even more complicated. You miss the mark one way or the other and this leads to frustration no matter what, causing no behavior change if the discipline lacks weight or meaning or causing rebellion, hate and so on if the discipline is too heavy-handed. Then things get even more complicated when you take it into the real world and you combine it where there are those getting disciplined, there is discipline happening in more than one circumstance and scenario needing a continuum factor of measures of discipline in any given day, any given moment, in all of your relationships. It's not just a parent-to-child thing or a boss-to-employee. It's, it's this move, and we see that with Christians especially, where if we have a problem, Problem, for instance, with one another, or we feel like there's been sin that has been done to us, what's the first step? Jesus tells us to go to that brother or sister. And, and as we go, how many times have y'all done that, first of all? Right. <laughs> Even if it wasn't rhetorical. Right? Why? It's because of what I just said. Humanly speaking, things can get very awkward very quickly. Because of our sinfulness. But that's humanly speaking. Discipline from God, perfect discipline, is a very different thing. God's discipline is oriented around reconciliation, which if you heard what I just said about Jesus' words for how we are to move in such things, that's oriented around reconciliation as well. Uh, all of our discipline should be just like God's, although we fall short. But, but God's discipline is oriented such that, that it is, it is always pushing towards reconciliation. That is, bringing people back into right relationship with Him. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Because why would you believe me? We need to take this to the Word. And we can. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Goes on in verse 11. For the moment, here's that part that I think we all resonate with. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained in it. Or by it. In other words, God's discipline breaks through sin to save His people. Yes, of course it's unpleasant. But when my child, for instance, Carwin, is running towards the road and there's a truck that's speeding down our neighborhood road going 45 miles an hour, I'm going to holler at Carwin and tell him to stop. And then I am going to discipline him that he might not do it again. Why? So he doesn't get run over. It makes sense. Spiritually speaking then, God is yanking us from the road and saying, Hey, I don't want you to get run over. And though it is unpleasant, that is very good. Very, very good. 
But it takes us to pause for a moment and to think on these things. And, and with, with these realities in mind, God's discipline to His priests in Malachi becomes something other than what we might think at first. Uh, the big pastor terms, right? Uh, the seminary class terms are eisegesis and exegesis. Are you letting God's Word speak for itself exegesis, or are you speaking into the Word and just kind of thinking, yeah, this is definitely what it is, eisegesis. I think that it means this, right? Rather than lifting up God's Word and letting God move from His Word that He has given. And as we let Him do that, because it's so easy to look at words like this and elsewhere and think, man, this is really bad, right? This is crazy. I mean, how do we even get something good from it? it it's, our, it's our minds seeping in. But, but if we lift it up for just a moment, we might see that verse 1 shows God extending Himself to a group unwilling to extend themselves to Him. Priests who have not only gone astray. No, that would be too easy of a term. Priests who are causing the people to stumble telling them not to worship God, not to believe in the Lord Jesus, not to believe in the Word presented. God is extending Himself to them. Verse 2 shows God's willingness to communicate difficult truths, His expectations, His people's unfaithfulness and the punishment for unmet expectations, which, again, this punishment talk, this discipline talk, it can seem harsh, but God is the one telling them all of this. And this very movement, this communication, is inherently and necessarily merciful. In other words, the priests that are being addressed, God's people that are being addressed, would be far worse off without the Word given, the expectation, the communication, the realities of what happens if the expectation is not met. These are basic in any parenting or discipline book you might read. And they're basic because they're real. And God does it here. For his people. Verse 3 uh, this shows God's true disciplinary action. This is the one that I think uh, most of us might say, well, I was with you until this part, right? Uh, until certain words were used and certain actions. Well, verse 3 it shows God's true movement and disciplinary action. And, and though it remains shocking, with just a little bit of Hebrew language understanding and a slight knowledge, the slightest, one verse's worth knowledge of Levitical law, of priestly law, of ceremonial law, whatever word you want to use there, the point comes home. For many of you, this will be a little bit of a refresher, right? We've been in the quarterly, I believe, in Leviticus and now Numbers. We've seen God's law bearing out. And so here, we're kind of getting a piece of that. The word dung, it can catch us off guard because we typically associate it with the bathroom. What is meant to be shocking becomes disgusting to our 21st century minds. But God's not trying to make a potty joke. We've got to be careful to just read something in. That's us, right? God's not trying to do that. 
This word is talking uh, about the stuff that's, that's inside. Uh, a better term, but one that's very archaic, which is why our Bibles don't use it anymore, is, is awful. O-F-F-A-L. Some of you might be familiar with the dish uh, in Europe, especially, uh, of the innards, right? Uh, this organs and things like that, just the, the ugh part, you know? Uh, uh, stomach and colon and, and intestine, uh, the offal, uh, the dung that uh, you might say is on the inside. Moreover, this waste within the organs, it was centered on the sacrificial offering, uh, the sacrificial animals. You even see that mentioned in verse 3, the dung of your offering. So now we see that it's the insides, the stuff within that's not so good of the animal sacrifice. In other words, God is distinguishing between that which is holy and acceptable in His sight and that which is unholy and unacceptable that will not come into his presence. And as an example, that was the Hebrew lesson, okay? Now we get the Levitical law lesson. One Bible verse. That's all we need. Exodus chapter 29, verse 14. This is some of the stuff you get rid of when consecrating a Levite, a priest. That's what the Levites did, okay? They were priests. Uh, you might say they were pastors set apart to, to serve the people in mediating the good news. That is, sharing the good news with the people that God was going to allow them to be in relationship with them. So what does it mean then? What do you get rid of when you're consecrating, when you're setting them apart, when you're ordaining them? What do you do? 29 verse 14 of Exodus, the flesh of the bull, its skin and its dung, that is, the stuff on the inside. You shall burn with fire outside the camp. It's a sin offering. Verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. The dung of your offerings. And then what? And you shall be taken away with it. 29.14 Where do you take that stuff? The dung that's on the inside? The skin? The flesh of the bull? You take it outside the camp and you burn it. There is a, a deep reality and connection where in discipline then, God is telling the priests who will know this way more than anybody else in the entire camp of the Lord at that time. God is telling these priests that they are no longer fit to fulfill their duties of, of sacrificing on behalf of the people if they stay as they are. Not looking to the Lord, but causing His people to stumble. In fact, they are so fruitless that they're not even put on the sideline. They are so unclean in their current state that they are only fit for destruction. Fire outside the camp. For these priests, the shocking realities of disqualification in words like this would be less disgusting and more terrifying than we typically imagine. Their hearts were put on full display before God. And for a moment, dear Christians, if it's possible, and maybe it's too possible for many of you, imagine if your heart was put on full display apart from the work of the Lord Jesus on your behalf. How terrifying would it be if your heart not you right now that I'm looking at. We can't fool God like that. Our hearts without Jesus 
on full display. Terrifying. Terrifying. And that would be what the priests feel with a verse like verse 3. It's the strongest of discipline. But remember, we must remember that God's goal here in discipline is reconciliation. And so His words don't stop at verse 3. Yes, we could stop there though and still see God's mercy in the movement of communication. But God's mercy multiplies over on itself with every single verse of the Bible. And we see that in the following. Our second point, the covenant. Verses 4 and then that first part of verse 5. Simply put, a covenant is a promise between two parties with consequences for both sides. Once again, there's an emphasis on right action. There, there is a movement that must happen. God repeats Himself. Uh, verse 1, this command is for you. The first part of verse 4, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you. Here, however, God reminds us of the fundamental reality of what His commands do. And if I might say, uh, this is one of the greatest mistakes or misunderstandings in the entirety of the Christian church right now. I know there's some biggies that we can sometimes squabble and fight over. That there are some ethical issues that take the news by storm, right? I know about those things and so do you. That's what makes this one so important. And so, what we see here with, with, the, with the commands are three realities. First of all, God's commands are an extension of Himself. So, what that means is that, is that they reveal His character. Even better, they are His character. Uh, John chapter 1 tells us that, that the Word was with God, that He is God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. And so this, this Word and this concept of God's Word, an extension of perfection is still perfection. And so what we get is God's very character extended to us in command. Secondly, God's commandments are always good because God is good. And God's words... The commands, remember, are an extension of Himself. If you extend perfect for another five meters, it's still perfect. Okay? Uh, this is basic logic, but it's logic that we forget because when we read the commands that we find within the Scriptures, this is the word that we think immediately. Rule. I need to do it. And that's right. But it's not all, and honestly, and you'll see, it's not the most important. Thirdly, this is the one we forget. Since God's commandments reveal His good character, they necessarily reveal not only His justice, the rules, i got to do them, right? Not only His justice, but also His mercy and grace. In salvation, remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. All of those words, what we would call the Old Testament, they're about me. I fulfill them. You see me there. Genesis 1, Malachi 2, Haggai, Zechariah. Where else have we been in the Old Testament? First Kings, Second Kings, the life of Joseph. Wherever we have been, what have we seen week in and week out? 
We've seen Jesus. And if you don't believe me, I was there. And we recorded it. Go back and listen. Because I preach Jesus and Jesus crucified. And I preach it from the Word. You of all people should know. God turns the tables. He, and notice what He does in verse 4. He, he says, can I, can I remind you why I am commanding you to obey? He says, so shall you know, right? Can, can I remind you why I'm commanding you to obey? And then he goes on, this is, this is verse 4, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. Here's a very important reality. And I gave them to him. He's already got them. Life and peace. I gave them to him. How did he give them this? How did he give Levi and, and his people life and peace? John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The covenant of life and peace has its yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. And here's an important part. On both sides of the covenant. Remember, a covenant is a promise between two parties with consequences for both sides if it is not fulfilled. In this case, there is God and there is His people. A covenant of life and peace has been cut. Okay? This is very important because Jesus truly fulfills both sides of this covenant, of this promise with consequences. Humanly speaking... On the human side of the covenant, okay? Humanly speaking, our problem is that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've broken the commands already. It's proven. Even God says it here of the Levites with which He has said, I'm going to give them life and peace. Because remember, God is a God of many generations, not of one. And when he promises, he promises, he promises moving forward to what he says is 10,000 generations. That's his way of saying infinity. I'm going to bless these people, my people, okay? And so when we have sinned and fallen short, when we've broken our side of the covenant, it's game over, which is a huge problem. Divinely speaking, that is, God's side of the covenant, God has not only promised in a covenantal way to give life and peace to His people, but He's already given it to many. Since His people have sinned, the sin must be punished, and the punishment for sin is death. How can He give them life and peace if the punishment is death, and God is perfectly just, and He is good, and His Word is true? Taking this into account, God would then be contradicting Himself. Which if you think about it, and God contradicts Himself, it's a huge problem. Because He's no longer God. He's no longer perfect. Enter Jesus. It turns out that from the very beginning, even before the creation of the world, 
that God was never at risk of contradiction, but rather total fulfillment of His promises beyond anything that our mortal minds could ever imagine. And we see that most fully in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and who took on flesh and is fully man. He came when the time was right to fulfill those shadows and signs that we see all throughout God's Word. And He fulfills them perfectly, which remember Luke 24. He says, this is all about me. And so it's this Jesus lives this perfect life. And as He dies this sacrificial death, as He fulfills this Levitical call, but He does it in such a way that He shows His priestliness after the order of a priest far greater. If you remember in Hebrews, Melchizedek. As Jesus is the perfect priest, as Jesus is the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice, and as king, as He's defending His people, what does He do as priest? He sacrifices perfectly for His people. And and who is the sacrifice? It's Him. And as He sacrifices, God's wrath is poured upon Him and not upon us. And then we see that fulfillment of the Scriptures. Romans chapter 3, as you read towards the very bottom, what do you find? That God in Jesus, God through Jesus, reveals Himself as both just, meeting out His wrath, and as justifier, the Savior of His people. No contradiction. For God had the plan all along and that He might reveal perfectly justice and mercy and love in an incredible way. The good news, the gospel. God breaks through sin and unbelief to save His people. And He does it in and through Jesus Christ. Let me apply this word quickly for y'all. Discipline is good. It is not bad. Upon true belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father quite literally adopts you. When we say our Father who art in heaven, it is a literal, it's not metaphorical. God is literally our Father. He has adopted us as children. And so with this adoption... With full seriousness, whether we like it or not, He will lovingly and, if needed, strongly correct you until the day Jesus comes or you go home to be with the Lord. There's no other way. Discipline doesn't always happen with the severity of verses 1 through 3 of Malachi 2. But the truth of the matter is this. God will mercifully reveal our spiritual deficiencies while equipping us by His Holy Spirit to grow out of those deficiencies. This is what it means when people say in the church, uh, are you a mature Christian? Or how are you maturing? Or how are you growing? You know, nobody ever defines these, term- th- these terms. Or, you know, what do you even mean? I don't understand. This, this is what it is. It's God's discipline pulling us out of those wrong things that we're doing. Where's all the sad faces and the crosses? That's what your life is. 
That's what it means to mature. But the question I have to ask is, is if, you, if you, maybe you were one who didn't know that, and that's the first time you're hearing stuff like that defined, have you embraced this? As a Christian, as a believer in God, as a confessor of the Lord Jesus Christ, have you embraced what it means to mature? Because Christian obedience, it's fulfilling who we are. Let me, let me say it in a different way. We are not fulfilling the covenant when we listen to God, when we obey God, and when we grow towards God. Jesus has already fulfilled the covenant promises. That's what the yes and amen means. That's what the good news, that's what makes the good news really good. Like truly good, capital G underlined. That's the reality is that God does a work for you and God saves you. And so, and so then after that, in this new parental relationship with God the Father, we are now, as we obey God by seeing the commands in His Word, as we obey Him and, and get more in line with what He's revealing, His very character, we are in a sense fulfilling who we are. And when we don't act like who we are, crisis occurs. The old Puritans called it spiritual depression. Frustration, discontentment, unsettlement. All of these different words, this anxiety that spawns forth that Jesus has so many words on. All of these things begin to bear out. And the question is... Have you embraced what it means to be a Christian? Because believing in Jesus and confessing in Jesus' name actually doesn't mean you've embraced it yet. God saves you apart from you and your sin still resides though it no longer presides over your life. And so the unsettled feelings the discontent, the frustration, the sin, the animosity, the hate, the malcontent, the sexual immorality, all of these things that Paul says what you should put to death. Anger, malice, wrath, idolatry, which is covetousness. All of these things, you should put them to death. Why? Oh, because they're rules. No! Because, what does he say in Colossians 3, chapter 1, if you were curious where we were at? He says, if you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. He's saying, be who you are. Be followers of God. Be on the way. Sojourning towards that great heavenly Jerusalem, where we won't have to worry so much about this anymore. But have you embraced it? Have you even thought about it? It's something we have to think about. It's something that we at Centennial are committed to think about. And so it's time for us to stretch our spiritual muscles, to stand up off of the spiritual couch, as it were, and to begin to move and to breathe and to have life, not in ourselves, but in God. And when we are who we are meant to be, that is when we will see 
contentment and peace and joy that is so infectious that no matter who we are with, the Lord will reveal himself through the good news of the Lord Jesus. There's a missionary in Spain, and I'll conclude with this. His name is Juan Carlos Bonilla. He came here to uh, preach to us and give us an update. That's how he evangelizes. If you ask Juan Carlos, how do you evangelize? How do you share the gospel of Jesus? His answer would be simple. He says it with a better uh, accent than I do. But he says, I just live my life. And when I live my life, the Lord is revealed. May we be those who would follow in such footsteps. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a good word with very good news that you are our Father and that you still speak to us. You don't ignore us. That you move towards us and that you remind us of the yes and amen, the fulfillment of the covenant of life and peace which you have given in Jesus. So now, God, help us to be who we are. Help us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.